This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we're talking about COVID, new variants, winter surges, and more recommendations for booster shots. What does this all mean for clinicians and their patients? On the Medical Watch, the spread of the latest COVID-19 variant is moving faster than estimated. The BA-286 variant has caused nearly one in 10 new COVID cases in the U.S. That's about triple what it was just two weeks ago. The World Health Organization... It's almost become a holiday tradition. Temperatures go down, decorations go up, and so do COVID cases. New this morning, heart attack deaths more common in younger people following the COVID-19 pandemic. And researchers Demand for the vaccine has dropped sharply since it was first introduced at the height of the pandemic. That's partly because the government's response to COVID-19 has been so politically charged. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. What has changed since the COVID pandemic first began? And what do we understand is happening with the virus now? To help us get some clarity on these questions, we're joined by Dr. Jeannie Marazzo. She recently succeeded Dr. Anthony Fauci as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. And we're also joined by Dr. Paul Sachs. He's clinical director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So Dr. Sachs, I'd like to start with you. What has changed for you and your patients since the COVID epidemic first began? So one thing that has obviously changed is that COVID infection has become much more common. Virtually everyone in the United States has either had it once or even more than once. Studies now indicate it's north of 90%. And the other thing, fortunately, is that on an individual case basis, COVID is less severe than it was originally. And that is the biggest change by far. This is no longer a novel virus. When it first appeared, it was severe. It was terrifying. It was unknown. We didn't know how to manage it, didn't know how to prevent it. And now it's much more like other respiratory viral infections, but still respiratory viral infections typically are much more seasonal than COVID is. We see COVID all year round. We see it more in the winter and we're seeing it more now in the post-Thanksgiving period. And it's never going to go away. It's unfortunately, that's out of the box. Uh, We're not going to be able to put COVID back where it was before. So Dr. Marazzo, Let's talk a little bit about how you see your role running the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases as the COVID pandemic has shifted. Here at NIAID, we have been in the forefront of uh, vaccine development. So that work is continuing. We're continuing to work with people as different variants of the virus continue to show up. The other side of what we have been doing has been to bring the clinical trials network capacity that we have that had been set up for HIV and AIDS for other infectious diseases over to the COVID realm. So we were able to pivot pretty quickly to mobilize clinical trial networks to study not just vaccines, but also treatments. So I think basically keeping that discovery piece very, very vibrant and then ensuring that we take really good care of the infrastructure that could be needed again. That's really where we are focused. So when you say again, what are you talking about specifically? So let's say that one of these new variants really does emerge to evade the immune 
protection of a vaccine. And that, of course, is the big concern, right? There are two ways these variants are going to be selected for further evolution. One is to get so good at infecting people that we just can't keep up. The other big pathway that we are concerned about is immune evasion, so that the vaccines just really stop working. The latest uh, couple of variants, particularly BA286 and JN1, are starting to show few more mutations, mutations that may actually cause some diminution of the vaccine efficacy, not raising the alarm there. We're watching it very carefully, but it's possible we could see a quantum leap as opposed to a gradual erosion of the protection of the vaccine. And if that happens, you know, we're going to have to move pretty quickly. We don't know for sure what the real world effect of these new variants increasing spread is going to be relative to the vaccine's ability to protect us. The only way we really know ultimately is looking at endpoints like hospitalizations and deaths. So Dr. Sachs, why is it so difficult to know how effective our COVID vaccines really are? Well, one of the uh, research gaps is a study done in people who've had COVID previously or been previously vaccinated, comparing it to a strategy of no vaccination. So all of the data that comes from real-world effectiveness comes from observational studies, and some of them are well done, some of them less well done, but they all have flaws. It would be wonderful to see a prospective randomized clinical trial of a updated COVID-19 vaccine versus placebo in people with a prior history of vaccination and or COVID-19 themselves and see whether we're still showing the kind of effectiveness in preventing severe disease that we think we are. So given this research gap in our vaccines, what are you now recommending for your patients? I have gone ahead and made the strong recommendation that the vulnerable individuals, older people, people with medical comorbidities, that they do get an updated booster. But the people who are otherwise quite healthy and younger, I think that even though there's a general recommendation for them all to get a COVID booster, I think it's it's more optional and you have to discuss the pros and cons with them. So why is the booster optional for young people in your view? Since we've had widespread immunity to the virus, demonstrating benefits of either the vaccines or the treatments has been more difficult. It's been more difficult for the vaccines because we don't have any studies in people with prior immunity. And it's been more difficult with treatments because the treatments that are widely available, talking about Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, haven't been shown to be effective in people with prior immunity. And so what we're doing is we're basing a lot on extrapolation of observational data and extrapolation from observational data can be biased by lots of factors that really researchers can't control. And right now as a clinician, when I'm advising my patients, if if you're a person at high risk of COVID-19 complications, then I am strongly recommending both vaccination and treatment. But if you're not in that category, then it's really worth a discussion with your clinician or your specialist clinician to really see whether it's for you. Dr. Marazzo, what's your view on who should be getting the COVID boosters now? I agree certainly with Dr. Sachs that people above 65 should get the booster. And I want to point out that the CDC just issued a health alert noting that vaccination rates were so low for COVID in people above 65, it's only 36%, that it really could pose a crisis. What kind of a crisis? 
a really serious uptick in deaths among older people, hospitalizations among older people, debilitating consequences among older people. And by that, I mean older than 65. And what about COVID boosters for younger people? When you think about people under 65, I think the immunological background here is infinitely complex, right? You've got people who have been infected with different variants over different times, multiple times, some in the setting of some vaccinations, some in the setting of no vaccinations. So I think when you try to delineate, for example, is this emerging variant more pathogenic? It's almost impossible to tell because you were looking at it on a background of kind of collective immunity in the population that's much more complex than I've had COVID versus not, right? Because there's all of these different ways to have had COVID and experience it. The other problem is, remember, immunity wanes, right? These are still coronaviruses. And this is why we got a cold every single year, at least pre-COVID. So coronavirus um, antibodies, on average, you know, three months is pretty good. Six months, you're kind of out of luck. So remember that When you're talking to somebody who's 40 or 45, if they've had COVID and they haven't had a vaccine in in a year, they may not be as quote unquote protected as you think they might be. So I think Dr. Sachs is absolutely right. You have to have the conversation with people. I tend to be more on the side of favoring a vaccine for folks who are under 65 because so many people have risk factors for bad outcomes of COVID, at least as measured by previous variants. So, I mean, 70% of U.S. adults have some risk factor for adverse consequences of COVID from obesity to diabetes to asthma. So I tend to be a little bit more permissive with younger folks. I do think people are experiencing this more like they experience the usual upper respiratory tract infections. That's not to say that people are not still getting sick, right? Hospitalizations have increased in the last four weeks for SARS-CoV-2 by about 50%. And we're still seeing long COVID. I I can't emphasize about 7% of people now who've had the infection are estimated to be experiencing longer term consequences. So even though I'm saying that the infection, quote unquote, doesn't look as bad, I really want to emphasize that for some people it remains bad. And for some people, you're going to have long term consequences. Dr. Sachs, your thoughts? Yeah, I I would say that the people for whom this vaccine is recommended by guidelines includes not just people over 45 with diabetes and hypertension and obesity, but includes a completely healthy 25-year-old. And, you know, vaccines are life-saving and miraculous, but we should not pretend that there's zero risk. These are quite reactogenic. Many people who get their COVID vaccines feel lousy the next day or the next couple of days. Some people have had more serious adverse outcomes, the most famous being myocarditis. And so I do think that there is a research question still out there. Okay, so let's turn to other protective measures like masking. What are you advising your patients now? I have to recognize that the societal appetite for masking is right now non-existent, except for a very small fringe of people. And so what I'm doing is in the context of that, that shift, which is understandable, I am recommending that masking really only occur in people who are are vulnerable to severe COVID-19 and who are going to be in settings where they're more likely to contract a respiratory virus. What does that mean? Practically, it means 
if people want to wear a mask while they're traveling in crowded settings, including flights, bus rides, public transportation, absolutely. If they want to wear them while they go to the grocery store, absolutely. But I go back to that the most likely scenario where our vulnerable patients are catching the respiratory viruses is when they're socializing with their friends and family. Uh, and it's very, very hard to make a recommendation to resume masking in those contexts without actually taking something very special away from them. It's a difficult conversation to have. And uh, I should just tell you that most of my patients have, have completely stopped masking. So now I'd like to talk about current treatments for COVID. We don't have many. Paxlovid, the oral antiviral medication, seems to be the most widely prescribed. Dr. Marazzo, who should be taking Paxlovid now? I think Paxlovid is an option for pretty much everyone with COVID unless there are contraindications to using it. And largely those include concomitant medications that you need to worry about and absolutely can't stop. And when I say it should be an option, it, it should be a consideration and a conversation with one's provider, a physician, because I've been very surprised at how many people have not been offered Paxlovid when they absolutely should have been taking it. So I think it's a dialogue, but I would love for people, especially physicians, to be sure that they have this conversation with patients, because if anything, I've seen it underutilized in people in whom I think it could really have had a big benefit. So Dr. Sachs, how are you now prescribing Paxlovid? Older people in particular, and people at risk of severe outcomes should receive Paxlovid. There again is a, a clinical trial done in lower risk people that did not show any benefits. And I think it's important for us to recognize the limitations of this drug and the limitations in addition to not showing benefit in lower risk people and the drug interactions that Dr. Marazzo mentioned. We also have to factor in the rebound phenomenon, which is much more common than originally estimated. It occurs in about 20 to 30 percent of people. And while most rebounds are not associated with getting hospitalized or dying, they are extraordinarily frustrating to patients who feel like their uh, time in isolation has been extended and that their symptoms have come back. So I'm very excited about other investigational SARS-CoV-2 therapies. And, you know, I, I really think that Paxlovid is really just step one for outpatient treatment of, of COVID and will be doing much better in the coming years. There are emerging data that medical treatment of COVID may reduce the likelihood of long COVID. And since we really don't have great treatments for long COVID, that could be a driver for some people to actually take the medication. And where are we currently with new treatments for COVID in the pipeline? Probably the most proximal option is going to be an oral version of the medication that we used through IVs during the pandemic, which is remdesivir, which had pretty good efficacy, not fantastic, but it definitely helped. And so the problem has been that you can use it as an alternative treatment for people who can't take Paxlovid, but you still have to give it intravenously over three days, even if it's as an outpatient. Another promising drug is a drug very much like Paxlovid called Encitrovir. And here, one of the most important pieces of information they got from the study, which is placebo-controlled, was that in the long-term follow-up of the study, the people who got treated versus didn't get treated reported fewer symptoms associated with long COVID. And in a placebo-controlled trial, that's about as high a level of evidence as, as you can get. So uh, that drug is approved already in Japan and is now before the FDA. So again, we hope we'll see that available soon. 
Dr. Marazzo, looking forward now, where are we in vaccine development, new vaccines for COVID? I think one of the biggest areas of investigation is in mucosal vaccines. Dr. Sachs mentioned that all vaccines, even if they are safe at a population level, still have risks. You do have rare outcomes, and also you have very common outcomes that make people feel not great. The idea of a mucosal vaccine is something that you could administer topically as an inhaled aerosol or a spray. These have some really great advantages. First of all, if you can induce immunity at the place where you get infected, you could potentially block infection entirely. You could also potentially reduce the amount of virus that you have in the infected area. So you might be even less infectious. And then the third thing is, if you do that in the nose, even if you did get infected and exposed, not as much gets to your lungs. So you're not as likely to get pneumonia. So there are some very promising candidates out there. They're now largely starting off looking at these in animal models and then starting to move to humans. So it's going to be hard to beat these if they look pretty good. And what about this so-called pan or universal vaccine? People are thinking and working very hard on the concept of a pan-coronavirus vaccine, which would be a coup. I think that the reality of that happening is not zero, but we're much more likely to get, I think, a pan-influenza virus vaccine before we get a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Why is it so challenging to develop a pan vaccine for COVID? This is a very smart virus. And when people say, oh, is this just another respiratory virus? I don't know that we know of another respiratory virus that mutates quite this quickly in quite the same incremental way. Certainly influenza, we follow very carefully for big antigenic shifts, but this is really different and very scary in terms of this accumulation of mutations happening before our eyes. Okay, so now that COVID is here and it's not going away, Dr. Sachs, how do you differentiate symptoms of other respiratory viruses making the rounds, like RSV and flu, from COVID? The short answer is that you can't really tell the difference. And one of the things you might see are these tables where various symptoms are listed. And by and large, there's so much overlap that you can't practically make an assessment one way or the other. So I tell people who have colds, or especially bad colds with fever and chills, it could be flu, it could be COVID, it could be RSV. And if they're the individual who might benefit from the treatment of those, then I, I like them to get tested. Fortunately, the home testing strategy is now much more widely available, both for COVID and for flu. Unfortunately, the cost of those tests has gone up, but still, it's a, a useful strategy. A lot has clearly changed since this pandemic first began. But Dr. Marazzo, in your view, are we still in a pandemic? I think if you look in terms of excess deaths, in terms of effects on global society, we are certainly on the other side of what was the pandemic. I'm a little hesitant to say we are completely out of the woods, but from a societal perspective, you know, everything looks very much back to normal. You've got Airports full of people not wearing masks. Hospitals are just where they were uh, previously in terms of uh, no excess admissions. So I think by all measures, we are certainly moving in the right direction. I just think we really need to be vigilant before we declare victory. 
That was Dr. Jeannie Marazzo. She's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, and also Dr. Paul Sachs. He's clinical director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We had help from our editor-in-chief, Dr. Eric Rubin, and our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. <laughs>